Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Good morning. There we go. I'm going to do my best to use this cordless mic, but the the backup is right here. So I plan to get into that if I need to. Uh, We've been with you guys less than a year. Uh, We we joined, like uh, John Mark was saying, with when several members had joined. We began visiting last fall, um, and we already feel so blessed having been here with you guys. Uh, The elders have been such a blessing to me. Uh, Many of you have encouraged us. We've been a part of a community group uh, off and on for the last few months and have really been blessed by that uh, and just a real joy. Uh, I I get to preach occasionally around the area. It's kind of being connected to OU. People ask you occasionally, but there's nothing like preaching at your own church. So this really is a a privilege and and a joy. Um, Before I get into the word, I want to pray one more time. Would you bow with me? Our God in heaven, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the worship. Lord, that we've been able to experience together and offer to you. Our Lord, we thank you for the blessing of this church, two churches brought together in this community. And Lord, I just pray your richest blessings, God, over the preaching this morning. I do pray, God, that it would be clear and, God, that you would encourage us and challenge us. But Lord, I I thank you for the leadership in this church, for, for John Mark, for Chauncey, for Jared. Thank you, Lord, for the important ministry that ever does all over the state. And Lord, for those that are listening to the word preached in Spanish just across the way here, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would move there or that they would be blessed and encouraged as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I have um, a reoccurring dream, or I guess it's a, it's a type of dream, and... Um, I've had it since I was young. I mean, many, many years. I mean, really going back to at least high school or so. Uh, When I was in high school, for instance, uh, I was really into music. Playing music was a big part of my life. And so there was this this week in and week out rhythm. And and I would have this dream. And again, multiple times that uh, I'm I'm sitting at my drum set and the band is all there and everybody in the congregation or everybody in the crowd is there. 
And it's just about time for the song to start, and I am completely unable to play the drums. Uh, sometimes in the dream it's that like my arms are really heavy and you can't go, or that I just, you know, I've never played the drums in my life and I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, it's this, this strange dream, and I would have it in different forms. And in high school, uh, I would have dreams, uh, no, in, in college rather, I suppose I might have had this in high school, but in college certainly I would have this dream, I had it a number of times, that uh, the, it's time for the final. Even in a class that I really enjoyed, you go and you, you sit down and you get the exam and you're about to take it and you are a blank slate. Either you completely failed the study or whatever you did study is just gone. Uh, maybe some of you still have those, those dreams, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. I, uh, I wonder if athletes, I wasn't much of an athlete, but, but I wonder if athletes kind of have this, you know, that it's, it's game day, you get out there on the field, you get ready to go, and then you're just completely a mess on the field. You can't catch, you can't throw, or whatever it is, depending on the sport. I wonder if, if athletes have those kind of dreams. I had these dreams when I was a pastor, and uh, it, would, it would sort of look something like this. It would be Sunday morning, and I would sort of come up into the pulpit to preach, and again, either I had completely not prepared or, or again, it's just like this strange impromptu thing where I just didn't know that I was preaching. And as embarrassing as that would be for the preacher, I would feel even worse for the congregation. Um, I, that, that, I don't think that's going to happen today. Uh, so, so far it hasn't. I, I, I kind of prepared for today. Uh, but in our text, in Luke chapter 9, 37 and following, which was just read... The disciples find themselves in a rather disheartening and embarrassing situation. They're completely unable to cast out a demon who was abusing and really oppressing this young boy. And again, a very disheartening situation at that moment. Now, the strange thing is not that they couldn't cast it out, but what we see before. Because at the beginning of chapter 9, which we saw several weeks ago now, Jesus has sent them out. He's authorized them. And specifically empowered them, he says, to heal and to have power over the demons. And then we actually see a little bit later in chapter 9, verse 6, that they've actually done so. They've exercised this authority. They've seen incredible things and and performed incredible things through the power of the Spirit. But at this moment, they're they're completely unable to help. and, And they're not sure why. Might have been one of those embarrassing dreams of mine sort of come to life for the disciples. Well, we'll reflect on this a bit today. All three of the the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record this episode that we've just read. But Luke has a unique way to frame it. Matthew and Mark are a little bit more similar. Luke's is a little bit different. There's something particular that he wants to emphasize for us. Well, in our text, as much as the disciples find themselves in this disheartening situation... Luke focuses his attention on Jesus by highlighting his unparalleled power to heal and his mastery over the demonic forces. And then after he heals this boy, following right on the heels of it, Jesus calls careful attention to foretell his coming death that would heal us from the greater enemy of sin. I've titled this message, Christ the Healer. Christ the Healer. I know we've just read it, but I want to read the text together one more time because there's quite a bit in here that I want us to see. And I'll reference it a little bit as we go through. Beginning again in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. for He's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. 
It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him one more time. But Jesus rebuked the the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This passage wonderfully and beautifully reveals that Jesus Christ is our healer and our deliverer from sin and death. My message is sort of divided into two parts, and it basically follows these natural divisions in the text. And so beginning in verse 1, the first several verses, number 1, Jesus heals. Jesus heals. Let me go to the pulpit, Mike, what do you think? Let's go to the pulpit. Test, one, two, can you hear me okay? There we go, okay. As we think about the setting here, and again, as John Mark said, thank God for the guys in the back that we often don't see. Sound guys, you're incredible. Thank you guys. As we think about the setting here, remember, this is falling right on the heels of the transfiguration, which we saw just last week. We find a great crowd and a desperate man emerges from the crowd. By this point in Jesus's ministry, it's really commonplace that large crowds come to see Jesus, probably larger as his ministry has gone on. And not only did Jesus's words draw people's attention, and they did, they were often astonished not only at his acts, but his very words. We see that at the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, that, that Jesus's words themselves have, have in many ways astonished the people. But even those who really didn't like or are sort of suspicious at what Jesus has to say can't deny the works that he's doing. Can't deny that he's healing people and that people are being delivered from all kinds of things. The people are hearing about miraculous signs that are reminiscent of the days of old when the prophets were among God's people. And so there's a buzz all over the place. So anytime he he presents himself, anytime that it's said that Jesus is near, well, clearly something special is going on and the people are rushing out to see him. And a desperate man in this moment, in verse 38, emerged from the crowd and calls out to Jesus. The man addressed him as sort of the respectful title. He says, teacher. But after that, he sort of just shows complete desperation. He says, teacher, I beg you, please look at my son. Come here, please. If you'll just look at him. Luke tells us that this was his only son. Luke's the only one that tells us this. Matthew and Mark don't add this detail. So at the very least, this sort of raises the stakes culturally and socially, perhaps also personally. Maybe this is his only child, but certainly it's his only son. But, but I think any parent can put themselves in this situation and sort of empathize with it, relate to this man's desperation. I, I adore my children. They drive me crazy sometimes, but I love them. I would do anything within my power. If there was a need, 
I would give my last dollar, I would give my last ounce of energy, anything for my children. That's just a parental instinct. That doesn't make me special. I think every parent can identify with that. I can't imagine to be in the place of this father who has suffered all this grief, being absolutely powerless, watching his son in this state, just watching him tormented, truly. Imagine that for a moment. And the son is in dreadful shape, isn't he? I mean, the only thing they could reason is that this is a power of a demon, which is exactly what the text confirms is going on. Just as a side point, I was, I was reflecting on this even this morning, that as, as late modern people, most, I mean, this is true for most of us, we, we are not primed to consider demonic activity when we see a crisis like this. It just doesn't naturally come for most of us. I mean, perhaps even as you read the text, as you heard this read, perhaps something in you sort of immediately goes to other kind of explanations for what's going on. You say that maybe that's epilepsy. Maybe there's something else going on. I think that's natural for so many of us. That's that's the worldview. That's just the, the air that we breathe. Right. We live in a materialistic culture in many ways, with some exceptions. But the scriptures are plain that this was a demon. And, and that's the only way also, even if it didn't use that language, the only way to make sense of the larger narrative of what Luke is showing us here. I say this to say the word of God challenges the naturalistic biases that many of us have. And really, if we would take demonic activity seriously, it might actually make more sense of the darkness that we see around us in this world. Now, another extreme could be that we see demonic activity under every rock. That's another extreme. But the Bible teaches us that that possible demonic activity is on the table. It's an option as we look at things in our society, in our world. Anyway, back to the text. The demon here makes him convulse and it foam. He foams at the mouth, this child. He's unable to speak. He can sort of give inarticulate groans. It's about the best that he does in these moments. And then in this scene, it throws him to the ground. Again, if you put yourself in the parental place here, I mean, that, that would grieve your heart to see this. In Mark's account, he tells us that this has been happening for a long time. Mark chapter 9, verse 21. So this isn't a recent phenomenon. I mean, perhaps this father could hardly remember a time where the son wasn't afflicted. Perhaps for many years. And again, the father being completely unable to help. Maybe you've found yourself in a long-term struggle that you can't seem to break. Maybe you find yourself in a situation that you just seem like you can't seem to overcome. It could be a whole host of things. It could be addiction. It could be a whole, a whole host of things. Something in your life that you just feel bound in some way. Let this story encourage you today to do as the Father did. He brings it to Jesus. We're intended to see the power here of this demonic agent, though. This is not a being, this is not a creature to be trifled with. He's, he's tormented this child really without challenge. No one has been able to do anything to help him. The cosmic powers of evil are real and they are formidable. But Jesus is sovereign over the forces of darkness. Jesus holds mastery over every sickness, over every affliction that we could ever have. 
He has power over every disease of the body, of the mind, even of the heart. He gives peace that is greater than any experience of loss or doubt that is just part of living in this world. We can go to him with our needs in faith. And he is also Lord over the cosmic powers of darkness. Jesus told the man, bring, bring his son, bring him here. And while he approached, again, the, day, the demon sort of rages and throws him to the ground one more time. And then, in an instant. As quickly as the man brought the son, in an instant, the, man, the boy is fine. The demon has been cast out and the boy is healed and restored once and for all. The rightful response to the story is to be in awe at the power of Jesus. And he exercises power over every every creature, every demonic force, and he possesses all power to heal as he does here. As much of a burden as the father has carried that burden is now released, making delight in his son being made whole. But what the disciples could not do, and that's an important part of the passage here. What the disciples could not do, Jesus does effortlessly. No problem at all. Because originally, again, just going back to that point, the man originally brought his son to the disciples, as mentioned. I mentioned this in my introduction, as we saw here in the text. But they're completely unable to help. It's not even like they could help for a little bit or they kind of seem to help partially. They're completely unable to help. And they're not even sure exactly why. One commentator points out in the original language, the idea suggested here is is a lack of power. They don't have the power to perform this. Jesus cast out the demon and healed the boy without any issue at all. And that's really Luke's main emphasis here on this point. But why weren't the disciples able to do it? It's it's worth our time. Can't help, but I'm the guy who wants to know. Why weren't the disciples able to do so? Again, think back to what we saw several weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus sent them out and empowered them, authorized them. In fact, let's look at it. Just two verses. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons And to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Even further than that, I mean, just reflect on what we saw last week in the transfiguration. I was so blessed by that message. We have James and John and Peter. So at least three sort of these core disciples here. They've just witnessed Jesus in all of his glory. In the transfiguration, if that doesn't like, if if they don't feel elated, if they don't feel sort of at a good place spiritually... You know, I wonder, you know, the disciples need some sort of special modification here for this type of demon. You know, what what was going on? Well, Jesus seems to connect the problem to faith. Look back to the text in verse 41. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? This is a really strong statement. So sometimes we're surprised like Jesus can be quite forceful. Like, I would have been like, Jesus, that's a little hurtful. You know, but he, this is quite forceful, what he says. 
He seems to be echoing Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, at least in the part about the twisted, the faithless and twisted generation here. So there might be some Old Testament import. But but at the very least here, the accounts in Matthew and Mark, they emphasize faith even more than Luke does. This is one of the things that distinguishes Luke a little bit. In Matthew, the disciples ask why they were unable to directly. And Jesus answered them. He says this in response. They say, why, Jesus? And this is what he says. He says, it's because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So that's in Matthew. And then in Mark, Mark brings us out. And I was chatting with Nate about this just earlier. Mark in, in chapter nine, verse twenty nine says that this kind cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. So he connects it to prayer, presumably a prayer of faith. So I think still connected to faith here. It's interesting. Now, as much fun as it would be to sort of tease out all of these things, I I am going to do my best to focus here on Luke's account. Let's at least try to understand what's here in Luke. And then all of you can figure out the rest in community group this afternoon or later this week. Okay. I think it might help if we're able to determine who Jesus is speaking about. Or who he's speaking to. I think that would help here as he says this when he makes this statement about the faithless and and twisted generation. Commentators disagree, of course. (laughs) But it's not just modern commentators. The ancient church reflected on this, too, and they had disagreements. They weren't quite sure. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria had really firm thoughts about this. So even the ancient church was grappling with this a little bit. It always encourages me a little bit when I'm like, oh, this isn't just us. Jesus doesn't seem to be speaking to the Father, though. I, I feel fairly confident about that, at least not specifically and not pointing him out in the, as, as opposed to the others. It might be that he's speaking to the disciples as he says this. We know they definitely still have a lot to learn. I mean, just next week we'll see in verses 46 through 48, they've got this whole issue where they're grappling and sort of jockeying for position. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? They, they still have a lot to learn. Maybe he's speaking to the disciples. I think it seems more likely that he's speaking more broadly, perhaps to the crowd or perhaps even more broadly than that. We certainly see examples in the Gospels in several places of people sort of being more interested in the reason they're coming to see Jesus. They're more interested in seeing something like a magic show or something impressive rather than actually putting their faith in Jesus. It makes sense that Jesus in this case would be frustrated with people's tendency to sort of see the miracles as, wow, this is impressive. This is this is incredible, but not fully understand or not appreciate that this is a sign of God's presence among them. And thus a call to repentance and to worship. Now, perhaps there was a a deficiency in some way of faith in the hearts of the disciples Or perhaps Jesus' words here are an expression of God's disfavor with the heart of the spectators. Perhaps a combination of both. But again, rather than focusing on the disciples' inability or ability in this case, Luke is interested in showcasing Jesus' unparalleled power as healer. That's Luke's point. And that's actually quite clear, thankfully, in the text. The people who witness the healing here, understandably, are astonished. See that word there? Astonished. I love that word. Can you recall a time in your life where you were astonished? Sort of left without even being able to speak for a moment. You're just in awe, transfixed on an event or a moment or a thought. 
this summer, my family and I went on a road trip uh, out west to, to visit friends and family in California. And on the way, we stopped at the Grand Canyon. I'd, I'd never seen it before. I've driven through Arizona probably 15 times going back and forth to California. had never been. So we went. We thought, oh, the kids are old enough now. They can appreciate it. We'll go. And, and it was wonderful. I had a good friend who knew that I was going, and he kind of pulled me aside. And he said, hey, you know, be ready. You know, like when you're there, this is like almost like, you know, uh, a transcendent experience. Like this is incredible when you go. And I'm like, oh, hey, come on, man. It's a big hole in the ground. Like, I'm sure it's cool. But, but when I got there, I was amazed. It, it really is. I, I don't know any other word than to say that I was astonished. We were, we were there in the southern rim. All the hardcore people go to the north rim. We were in the southern rim. And, and we were just walking around and, and just, I mean, I could have stayed at any particular angle all day. It was majestic and truly beautiful. Awe-inspiring, thinking about God's handiwork there. Joy and I kept saying to each other, we said, like, it almost doesn't look real. You have like a hyper-reality thing, like, is this a picture? Your mind is sort of trying to, you know, compute what it's seeing. It's such a remarkable thing, at least for me. I felt astonished. And then just shortly later, that same week, a few days later, we were able to drive Highway 1, the Pacific Coast Highway in California, which I've driven many times. But every time I go back, we got to go down to Big Sur. And again, it just boggles the mind, the beauty, the mountains and the water crashing on the rocky coast. I mean, it's just truly, it is astonishing. But that's about the best I can do, guys. I've never witnessed anything like this. I mean, this would be astonishing, I think, at a whole nother level to see what Jesus did here. And Luke is specific when he describes the nature of their astonishment. Look there in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. If many of the people had primarily been interested in sort of impressive feats, incredible acts that God was doing. Well, now here, Luke tells that the people were astonished at the majesty of God. And and this is a crucial point of Jesus' miracles. All of them, when we think about the, the ministry that Jesus did, his healing ministry, the miracles reveal God. They not only reveal who Jesus is, but they teach us about the divine nature. They teach us something about what God is like. And Jesus' acts here reveal God's glory, and they display the saving presence of God. And we could linger here just on this moment, just on really verse 43. But, but looking back, there's something I thought of in, in my studies this week. Looking back at the people's astonishment here, think back to, to where we were just last week with the transfiguration. What was, uh, there's a commentator, I. Howard Marshall, that makes this point. I love the way he says it. What was visible only to the chosen three on the mountain is here visible to a far greater number. God's glory. In these verses, we've seen a beautiful picture of Christ as healer. Compassionate and powerful beyond all measure. But now in these final verses here, they grab our attention. Verse 44 and following. They grab our attention to illuminate the greater mission of Christ's ministry as healer. We saw in part one that Jesus heals. Now, number two, and lastly, Jesus heals more than our temporal afflictions. Jesus heals more than our temporal 
afflictions. Now, actually, really even still here in verse 43, the people continue to marvel at what Jesus has done, what they've witnessed. I mean, what they have seen here, they would not soon forget. Luke suggests that it was the experience uh, of their astonishment here that that it ultimately shapes this as we think why Luke then follows as he does with this account. In fact, the synoptic, the other synoptics, Mark and Matthew, actually do the same thing. It's interesting that he immediately goes out of this incredible miracle here. The disciples themselves could not do. Jesus does it effortlessly. This child is delivered. And then he goes in to speak about this opportunity ultimately here. He's going to call careful attention. He's going to, Guys, I've got something really important to say to you. This is what he says in verse 44. He says, let these words sink into your ears. Parents, you ever said that to your kids? Let these words sink into your ears. This is actually, it's a Hebraic idiom. Uh, commentators point this out. It's emphatic in the original language. I mean, he's, he's saying this really firmly. Guys, listen, this is really important. Uh, the NIV captures it pretty well when it, it translates it this way. It says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. I had a professor in college, one of my favorite professors, and he had this way of sort of stirring conversation. And sometimes he would play devil's advocate and kind of allow us to explore a lot of ideas. And it was just a great time of learning, kind of engaging in this way. And, and then at some point, he always had this instinct to know when enough had been said and enough key ideas had been captured that he would put up his hand and say, OK, now look. He would kind of stop. All the conversation would instantly stop. And he would put up his hand and say, now listen. Now everybody was listening really carefully because he generally had something really profound to say. He had such a way to kind of tie up all the loose ends, bring things together, things that people had already brought out, but say it in a really compelling way. And so anytime he did that, all right, listen, everyone would pause. Well, Jesus is effectively doing that here. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. I know you're astonished. I know you're thinking about everything that just happened. I know the people still are. But he has something to tell them. And what he tells them really comes as a bombshell. In verse 44, look there with me. He says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And as Jesus foretold his death here, these words remind us that when we speak of Christ as healer, and we, we do and we should and we must, when we speak of Christ as healer, we're reminded that he heals more than our temporal afflictions. At the very heart of why the Son of God came and took on flesh was to suffer in our place to deliver us from the curse and the consequences of sin. His healing ministry delivered many. And we could dwell on each of these accounts. He delivers them from sickness, from oppression. And this reveals God's love and his compassion and, and obviously his power. But all of this was leading toward a greater sacrificial act that would forever deliver his children from eternal bondage and judgment. I mean, just think about it. When Jesus fed the 5,000. Incredible miracle. I mean, that, that's actually one of the ones that I think is, is most just hard to imagine. Like, what did it actually look like? When Jesus fed the 5,000, all of these people get their fill. There's all this food left over. Incredible scene. But everyone who ate those loaves and the fish, they were hungry again. They had to eat again. 
And within relatively short order, I mean, even if they really were full, within, you know, six, seven, eight, ten hours, they've got to eat again. Even Lazarus, again, another miracle that's just, okay, Lazarus was not only dead, but his body is decomposing. He's been dead for quite some time. Jesus raises him from the dead with his voice. I mean, incredible miracles. He brought this man back from the dead. But Lazarus would eventually die again. But what Jesus predicts here in verse 44 was a final way that it was it was final in a way that no other miracle was. It's remarkable for us to think about. And this brought about a kind of deliverance that was eternal in its achievement. It will never fade. It will never need to be redone. At the cross, Jesus gives us eternal life and he sends his spirit to be with us now as we await the final consummation. It's done. He's already handled it. The, the achievement is there. And yet, while we are waiting for the final consummation, his spirit is here with us. When Jesus says this, he, he drops a bombshell that they fail to understand. They couldn't grasp what he had just told them. I mean, it, it just didn't fit with the triumphal spirit that they're experiencing in this phase of Jesus' ministry. I mean, actually, even in their own ministry, again, think back to chapter 9, verse 6. We see that they have also done incredible things through the power of the Spirit. And they've witnessed the transfiguration. And they've witnessed Jesus' mastery over the demonic forces just a moment ago. This just didn't compute. It, It didn't seem to make sense. Perhaps it was disbelief. I think we even talked about this last week in community group. Why is it that they're unable to understand this? Maybe it's a sort of a sense of denial that kept them from grasping it. But then look here. Luke also tells us that it was concealed from them. So if there was a a disconnect in sort of the natural sense here, Luke also tells us that God has concealed this from, from their understanding so that they might not perceive it. Verse 45. And then at the very end here, they they are afraid to ask Jesus what he meant. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe you didn't want to know any further details? You say, no, no, that's enough. I don't want to know anything else. I I, I think that's where they are here. Like, we don't we don't even want to know. Is he saying what I think he is? I don't I don't even want to ask him just at the chance that it might be what I'm what I'm reflecting on for a moment. A number of times in the Gospels, we encounter a a sense of triumphalism in the disciples that really has no place for the sacrificial work that will be the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. They wanted a Christ without a cross. They wanted deliverance without the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And then, of course, for themselves, too. It's not just Jesus. For themselves, they want a privileged position rather than the humble service that Jesus has already been modeling for them. They're very human, in other words. To be fair, again, who wouldn't be taken aback to consider that the one that they just saw gloriously transfigured and the one who speaks a word and demons flee I mean, it makes sense that to, to consider they would be taken aback, that this one who did these things, that represents all that they've been waiting for, that he would suffer and die to take on the punishment of sin. 
Well, before long, they will understand when Jesus goes to the cross and rises in victory. A lot changes after that. After the resurrection and then the ascension, things do fundamentally change in the disciples' hearts and minds. But it took that. It took these events for them to understand. And in retrospect, all of this will make much more sense to them. But in this moment, it doesn't quite compute what they've just heard. As we think back here, verses 37 through 42, the demonic possession in this passage really illustrates well the power of sin. And just as Jesus delivered the boy from his oppression and healed him, so he achieved salvation for all those who would come to him. Having given his life, he offers deliverance from alienation. From emptiness. For all those who would come to him, he promises to give forgiveness for every sin. For every shortcoming. And he promises to give us eternal life. As well as an unrivaled peace in the present. Look to him today. If if there's anyone who doesn't know Jesus in this way, if there's anyone who only knows Jesus as an idea, and maybe you have warm sort of ideas and thoughts of religion, but if Jesus is not Lord, if you have not put your faith in him, run to him today. Jesus stands ready with his arms open. For those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, for those of us who know God, for those of us who walk with Christ, my, my prayer today is that this message would stir your hearts as we think about Christ as healer. Let's pray together briefly. Our Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that it would remain with us and that it would stir our hearts. Amen.